This week, today, we are wrapping up our series on change. And we've been talking about not just how to change, but more importantly, why. Not just because we all come into the new year, we all have these change projects, we all have these things we want to change about ourselves, but how are those, how do those projects fit in with what God's will is for us? And so as we've been talking through that, uh, if you were here last week specifically, Steve talked about the idea of shame, because shame is one of the great immobilizers of change in our lives. Nothing prevents us from taking the steps we need to take to make positive changes more than shame. Because shame, and we differentiated between guilt and shame, guilt is the idea that I did something wrong. I feel bad because I know I did something wrong. Shame is that I am wrong. I didn't just do one bad thing. I've, everything I do is wrong because I'm wrong. There's something wrong with me. And, and when I feel guilt, it leads me to, to seek to make amends, to fix it, to reach out, to ask for forgiveness. Shame is the opposite. Instead of pushing me to reach out, shame pushes me to pull back. Shame makes me want to hide. When I feel shame, I, I don't want you to see those shameful parts of me. And so we hide, and we hide in two different ways. We hide either by performing or by pretending. Last week, we talked about performing. The idea that if I can be better, if I can do more good things, if I can make you see how good I am, then that will cover over my shame. You won't see the bad parts of me because the good parts of me are so amazing and so incredible. Look how great I am. We saw last week that never works, and you know that never works, because the shame's still there. But what we said last week is because God is glorious, we don't have to keep trying to impress other people. We don't have to. His glory is so much greater than anything we could manufacture or generate for ourselves. If we lean into his glory, instead of just trying to constantly boost or create our own glory, that's a much, much better solution. It's a real solution. But there's another way besides trying to perform, trying to be better, that we try to deal with our shame, and that's by pretending. Have you ever told a lie? That's a silly question, of course. Okay, here's a better question. What are you lying about right now? What are you pretending about in this current moment? In the, the past few weeks or months, sometimes years, what is it that you've tried to cover over, that you've hidden, that nobody can ever know? And so you've constructed a narrative to paper over it. What are you lying about? Why, let me, let me ask you this, why do we lie? Why do we lie? Because, look, nobody likes lies, right? We all hate lies. When anyone lies to us, when we discover someone lied to us, we are indignant. We hate, we, we all despise fake people, don't we? Oh, I can't stand those people, they're so fake. They're always putting on a show. I can't stand that. We long for, we say, we long for people to be authentic. Just be yourself. That's all we really want, right? If that's true, then why do we lie? 
If everybody hates lying so much, why does anybody lie? But we do, don't we? Now, when I say lie, lie sounds really harsh. Um, so maybe, is there a euphemism for lying? We, um, I don't know, we cover things over. We leave things out. We shade the truth. I don't know, whatever it is that, that you prefer sounds better. But we all do it, don't we? Why? Because we have to cover up our shame. Whether it's big or small, there are times when we feel that we, we have to lie. Because the consequences of the truth, in our minds, the consequences of the truth would be so much worse. Right? Because I, I hate lying. I would never lie. I hate, oh, people who lie, that's horrible. But in this instance, the consequences, if people knew the actual truth, the consequences would be so much worse. Whether it's big or small, there's times when we all feel like we have to lie, right? It could be something as small as like why our homework wasn't finished, right? I was a teacher, okay? So I've heard some of those stories. I never in my entire teaching career ever heard anybody blame their dog, never. Multiple times people blamed their cat. I don't, I don't know why. They're like, I think, maybe this is it, the middle school mind. Well, everybody knows the dog thing's a lie. But the cat, hmm. One kid, yeah, well, I started, I have to say it now. One kid brought in the assignment as proof. This stain here, that's from my cat. And I was like, I don't want to see that, okay? I'll, I'll, I trust you. Um, it could be something as small as that, or it could be something much bigger, right? As big as, I don't know, trying to cover up an addiction or an affair or, or monetary fraud. Something that, what would people think if they knew the truth? And because I, I know, I, I have this shame and I feel this, I am bad, I am wrong. And if people knew that about me, what would they think? And if I can't create my own glory, right, if I can't be impressive enough, then I'm just going to have to fake it. And the old saying, fake it until you make it, but we all know you never make it. So you just constantly are going to have to fake it, what, forever. Now, most of the time, uh, when we preach about lying, it's, hey, don't lie. It's really wrong. Let me show you how wrong it is. Let me show you the consequences of what will happen when you lie. I, I want to prove to you lying is bad. Here's the thing. I don't think I really need to prove to you that lying is wrong. None of us wants to lie, do we? The times you lie, the times you notice, catch, recognize yourself being dishonest, you feel just as much shame about that as you do about the thing you're trying to cover over but you feel caught in a cycle. Now that I've been dishonest about this, I have to continue in this because if they ever knew, and if they knew on top of it that I've been dishonest about this, the, the thing is not that we want to lie. The problem isn't that, yeah, lying, that sounds like a great idea. The problem is we feel like we have to. We feel like we have to pretend. We feel like we have to... I don't know, 
shade the truth. Because it's the only way out. So here's the beautiful truth that I want you to see this morning. Not that you shouldn't lie. That's that's true, you shouldn't, but that's not the point today. The point is this, the beautiful truth that we need to see this morning is that we don't have to lie. We don't have to lie. In spite of our shame, in spite of our sin, we don't have to lie. We can be honest. I want to show you this in a passage uh, this morning in the book of First John. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of First John. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback Bible under the seat in front of you, and you can turn to page 1021. First John, it's very close to the end of the Bible. Um, as we read through this passage together in First John, we're going to read First John chapter 1. I want you to listen to this passage and see some tension in this passage we're reading. Okay, it's both challenging and comforting at the same time. I want you to see that. First John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 5. We're going to read through to the very first verse of chapter 2. So First John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, my little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word of the Lord. All right, we actually looked at uh, this book, 1 John, a couple weeks ago uh, when we were talking about getting clean. If you missed that sermon from a couple weeks ago, highly recommend you go back um, and listen to that or watch it online. But we looked at chapter 2. Uh, verses 15 through 17. And, and as we looked at that, one of the things Steve emphasized about 1 John, um, it's written by the Apostle John, and one of the things that the Apostle John does in this letter, he uses these very definitive, very black and white statements. But there's actually a whole lot of nuance to what he says. Okay, And, and you see that, that really comes through in this passage. Because if you look at it, like, look at verses 5 and 6. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Very definitive statement. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It sounds like what that's saying, very black and white, is because God is absolutely perfect. Therefore, if we claim to be followers of God, but we are not equally perfect, then we are lying. Very definitive. If you claim to be following God, but you are not 100% perfect, eh, you're lying. You are not a follower of God. 
It very much sounds like what he's saying in those verses is the only way you can claim to be a Christian is if you have no sin. And yet, and yet, if you look at verse 8, he says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And again, very blanket statement. Again, verse 8, very black and white. If you say you don't have sin, you are lying. In other words, everybody is sinning. So if I take those two passages together, it sounds like, it sounds very much like what he's saying is this. The only way to be a follower of Christ is to be sinless, and everyone is sinful. Therefore, there are no real followers of Christ. Now that can't possibly be it, right? Is that actually what he's saying? So there's two questions that I think we need to ask um, to help us clarify exactly what John's saying in this passage, at least in the the first part of this passage. First, what does he mean when he says walk in the light? Because that's really important. And then second, is he really saying that all of us, all of us have sin? So let's take those one at a time. First of all, what does he mean when he says to walk in the light? Um, To walk in the light, or by, uh, well, verse 7 says if we walk in the light. Verse 8 or 6 says it in the negative, to walk in the darkness. Walking in the darkness and walking in the light is not, walking in the light is not an expression that means to not sin, okay? Walking in the light does not mean walking perfectly in obedience to everything God has ever said. Instead, walking in the light is an expression that's talking about what is the guiding principle that shapes your life and your behavior. Throughout the New Testament, the the idea and, and the Old Testament, in the entire Bible, when they talk about walking, they're talking about your way of life, your behavior, okay? Verse 5 tells us God is the light. It says that very definitively. God is the light. In him is no darkness at all. He is what is true. He is what's right. So to walk in the light doesn't mean to be perfect. God's perfect. What it means is to follow what he tells us is what's right. I think maybe a metaphor would help, and honestly, John's using a metaphor here, so if we can kind of picture this um, in our own lives. Think about if you were walking on a a really dark night on a street that has street lamps, okay? A street lamp casts light out. The street lamp is the light, right? But as you walk on that really dark night, you want to be careful to walk in the light in the way that is illuminated by the light that comes from that street lamp. If you said you were walking down the street in the light from the street lamp, nobody would think you meant you were like literally in the lamp, right? And as you walk in the light, there are varying degrees of how in the light you could be. Picture the light from a street lamp. At the very center, it's the brightest, right? Because the source of light The light that comes from it is going to be less bright the farther out it goes. The more you stay in the center 
of where that light is being cast, the easier it's going to be to see. The further out you get from that central point, the less light you will have, the harder it is to navigate. If you step completely out of the light, then you would say you're walking in darkness at that point. You have to get pretty far out, actually, right? Depending on how dark the night is and how, this is where the metaphor breaks down, how many street lamps there are, right? Honestly, when have you ever walked on a dark street where there's literally one street lamp? Maybe in a small, small, small town. I would be really scared to be walking there at night, no matter how bright that street lamp is. But anyway, so, but you get the metaphor, right? To walk in the light does not mean to be in perfect obedience all the time to God's will. What it is saying, what John is saying here, is that if the way you are walking, meaning the choices you make, the way you live your life, is completely outside, completely outside, of the revealed instruction of God in your everyday life. If you're not even, in your mind, in your attitude, in your choices, even thinking about or interested in or in any way guided by the truth of what God has revealed, that should be a pretty big clue to you, John is saying, that maybe you don't have the relationship you're claiming to have if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus... If you say that you have fellowship with him, but you're walking completely outside of what he's revealed to be the truth, how does that, how does that go together? It doesn't mean by necessity that to follow Jesus means you're in perfect obedience all the time. Okay, and that's what John's saying here. And that's our second question. Is John really saying that all of us are sinners? Yeah, actually he is. Yeah, the answer to that question is yes. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, he says it again. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. <clears throat> Who is the we he's talking about? If we say we have no sin. If we say we have not sinned, the we is followers of Jesus. And by using the word we, John, the apostle John, John, the apostle who we talked about this during our Advent series, the apostle John, who was one of Jesus' three closest followers, he's including himself in this. And he's saying it both past tense and present tense. Verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, past tense. But in verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, present tense, we deceive ourselves. Look at what John is saying here, okay? If you say that currently, right now, you are perfect, sinless, that is not true. It's a lie. Notice also, He's using the word sin both as a noun and as a verb. Saying we have sin. It's a thing that's inside of us. There's actually this thing inside of us. Sometimes theologians call it a sin nature. John here just calls it sin. We have it inside of us. It is there. Even believers, even followers of Jesus, even those who are walking in the light, following him, 
that sin is still there. And we do it. It's something we do. It's not just something we have. It's also something we do. If we say we have not sinned, if we... Because maybe, okay, maybe, maybe we could put it this way, like, yes, I know there is sin within me. I know there are forces within me that would push me to do what is wrong. But I, I can, I can pretend, I do not give in to that sin. I do not sin myself. It's there. I know it's there, but I don't do it. John's saying that's just as much of a lie. Yeah, you sin. You do it. Yeah, you have sin within you. It's there. All of us, all of us know that we are sinners. That's why we want to hide. That's what we're trying to cover up. We want to pretend everything's okay because we want to say, don't look, don't look at my shame. Don't see this. And, and so either we pretend, I'm not a sinner. I don't, I don't sin. I don't do anything wrong. I've got this all worked out. I've got this all together. Everything's good. Or we just pull back completely. Isolate ourselves. My sin is too much. It's too great. I can't let anybody see it. So I've just got to hide. Like, don't let anybody in. Don't let anybody see. Because no matter what I say, if they get to know me, they'll see it. And so we just fully separate ourselves. But that solves nothing. It solves nothing. Because... We also have within us a really strong desire to be known. As much as we don't want anyone to see the bad parts of us, we desperately want someone to see us. We want someone to see us as we are and love us but we're terrified that anybody who sees us as we truly are will absolutely despise us. I want, I want so badly, you want so badly for people to see you and know you and love you. But you're so terrified. I'm so terrified. We are so afraid that if they actually saw us for who we are, They would be so disgusted. So we have to put on a show. We have to hide. We have to cover over. We have to pretend. So that maybe they'll like that image. Here's here's the really sad part of this. That belief we have that if people actually saw us for who we are, they wouldn't accept us. We really do have a valid warrant for that assumption, don't we? Think about our culture. Think about the world we live in. The world that we live in teaches us that we have to have a certain image to be lovable. We feed ourselves constantly on this idea. This is how you should look. This is how you should behave. This is what you should believe. This is what you should drive. This is where you should live. This is what you should be earning. This is who you need to be. 
And we all know that if we don't fit that, we've seen it. We've seen what happens to people who are outside of what they're supposed to be. They get ripped apart. We've all seen people get ripped to shreds when the truth comes out. What that image looks like, what it's supposed to be, it shifts, it changes based on on who we're around, depending on what kind of community you find yourself in. We have different, we all have different circles who will value different things, but they all have some set of values that we understand to be, this is who I need to be to be accepted. The absolutely unconscionable truth about Jesus is that his love for us is not based upon our image. Jesus does see us as we really are. This is, this is what Scripture teaches us, that there's a God who is omnipotent and omniscient, which means he knows everything. He sees you even when you are trying to pretend he knows the truth about you. All your lies that everybody else is fooled by, Jesus sees through that. He knows who you really are. He knows what you've done. He knows about the sin that's inside of you. No matter what you tell everybody else, no matter what you tell your friends or your spouse or your community group or whoever it is about how great you've been doing, Jesus sees the truth and he loves us anyway. Jesus sees us as we really are and he still loves us. Look at verse 9. Verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But verse 9 says, But if we confess our sins, He, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He sees our sin and he covers over it. He washes it away. He doesn't take away, and this is what we see in this passage, he doesn't take away in this life that sin that still dwells inside of us. It's still there. But he cleanses us from it. He washes away the stain of what it puts upon us. The the way that we feel, and the word we use when we sin, we feel dirty, Jesus washes that away. He makes us clean. He isn't looking for us to be perfect. He's making us righteous by covering us with His own righteousness. He's not looking for perfection. He's asking us for confession. That's the word he uses. If we confess our sins, what does it mean to confess our sins? It just means to be honest. Jesus' desire from us is just that we would admit that we are unable on our own to be good to be good enough, whatever your 
image of good enough is, you know you're not. And so the lie you've been trying to construct to make everybody think that you are, if you would just let that go and admit, I'm not good enough, Jesus says, thank you, because I am. Because he is good enough to cover over our sin. Not cover over like pretend, like we pretend to cover it over, to actually wipe it away, to cleanse us from it. Jesus is good enough. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, because I love the way it talks about this tension. My little children. Because this is the Apostle John, and he's talking to us with such affection. Because he looks at all of us who are trying to follow Jesus and struggling so hard with this tension between, I want to hide and I want to pretend, but I know on the inside who I really am. And he looks at us and he says, my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It would be great. (laughs) Don't sin. As we walk in the light, as we follow Jesus, that's not sinning, right? So I'm writing to you so that you know you don't have to sin. Okay, John's not saying here, you're sinners and you have sin and you have to. He's just saying you do. You don't have to. I'm writing those things so that you won't. But if anyone does sin, and, and, and what has he said in chapter 1? All of us do. And when we do, what do we do about that? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And why does he call him Jesus Christ, the righteous? Because he wants to point out Jesus never sinned. Jesus lived on earth. Jesus came to earth as a human, but he never sinned. He's the only one who could say he has no sin and not be a liar. Jesus is righteous. He's our advocate. When we sin, he is the one by his grace, by his mercy, he is the one who goes to the Father on our behalf. We call that grace. Jesus meets us in the tension in between the ideal, I write this so you will not sin, and the reality, but if you do sin. Of course, there's an ideal. There is a standard. Scripture tells us, here's what it looks like to follow God ethically, morally, perfectly. Here's what that looks like. And that's the ideal. And all of us who are followers of Christ, as we follow him, we seek to walk in obedience to those ideals. Absolutely. But we know, all of us know, that in seeking to do that, we stumble and we fall and we fail. And in that gap, in between what what we wish and we hope and we seek to be and who we truly are, that's where Jesus is. He meets us where we are. That's his grace. Our God is a gracious God. As we've gone through this series, we've talked about four truths about God, and they all start with G. God is good, God is great, God is glorious, and today the final one, God is gracious. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward us because of Jesus' unmerited sacrifice on our behalf. We do nothing to earn God's favor. 
We do nothing to earn Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. He does it because he loves us. And we call this grace. That grace, that grace allows us to step away from pretending and to be honest. We don't want to lie, but we feel like we must because we have to cover up who we really are. Jesus' grace says, I see you as you are. I love you there. Jesus doesn't love us if. Jesus loves us, period. His grace, his mercy comes to us in our sin. He loves us there. And because that's true, because that's true, we can be honest. We don't have to keep trying to put on a show. We can be honest both individually and as a community. We want to be known, right? Well, look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, what are the benefits of it? Well, we said the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. We're clean. But, but look at the first thing he says. We have fellowship with one another. Because of Jesus' grace, we are able to have community with each other, to have fellowship with each other, to be honest with each other. The message of Jesus' grace is for each of us individually. But it's not just for me, it's for us. Do you understand what I'm saying by this? What I'm saying is this. Often, when we are hit by the amazing message of God's grace towards us, when we recognize how awful of sinners we are, and yet that God loves us in spite of our sin. He sent Jesus to die for us because of our sin, and there's nothing we could ever do to earn it. There's nothing we have to do to to hold on to it, that we are totally and completely unconditionally loved because of God's grace. We are overwhelmed by that. And we start to look at our own lives so differently, and yet, and yet, sometimes, We see that in ourselves, but then we look at other people and we see their sin. And it's a really hard leap for most of us to make that jump from, okay, I'm loved unconditionally, but it would be really great if those people would perform a little bit better. But God's grace isn't just for us. It's for us. That won't make any sense if you're listening to the audio of this sermon. So what I'm saying is God's grace isn't just for individuals. It's for all of us. If this is true, if this is true, there are implications for what this means for us individually and as a church. So let me just, to to, to kind of finish up, run through, and I'll try to be fast, three really big implications of this for us individually and as a church. Because God is gracious, because of God's grace, we can be honest about our own sin and we can have grace for others' sin. I want to be clear about this, okay? We're talking about being honest. To say we can be honest doesn't mean we have to share everything with everyone, right? 
okay? Like, what's the most common greeting we have for each other? Hey, how you doing? Right? I've probably heard that like at least five or six times already this morning. Every time somebody says, how are you doing? Being honest does not mean at that point in time you need to give them a full inventory of your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being, okay? I believe even within the bounds of Scripture, it's okay to answer that question by saying, I'm doing good. I'm doing okay. I don't think that's necessarily dishonest, okay, because it's just a greeting. However, however, the question we need to ask ourselves is who in your life has the kind of relationship where you are completely and totally honest? Who have you allowed yourself to open up to and be honest with? And who knows that in response, they can be honest with you? Who is there that you can share about your own sin and temptation? Who is willing and able to share with you about their sin because they know that you're not going to judge them, that you're going to extend God's grace to them. John's making it clear here. We're all sinners. All of us. There's no room for judgment. There's no room here to determine who's a worse sinner than us. If we both individually and as a church, if we are shaped by God's grace, then we can respond with grace in love to people who aren't always going to act the way that we think they should. People let us down. People sin. You sin. I sin. Why is it that I want all of God's grace for my sin but I'm unwilling to extend any of that grace to anybody else's sin. Because God is gracious. We can be honest about our own sin. We don't have to hide. We don't have to try to cover it up. Because what you think of me and what I think of you has no bearing on my forgiveness of my sins. It's Jesus' sacrifice that cleanses me, not your opinion of me. I can be honest. And it's not your behavior, it's not your performance that makes you right in Christ's eyes. So I don't need to be judging you. When you're honest, I can love you in your honesty. Because God is gracious, we can be honest about our own sin and we can have grace for other sin. But it extends beyond that as well. We can be honest because of God's grace. We can be honest about our own pain and have grace for others' pain. We know that there's supposed to be a certain image that we portray. That if we want to be accepted, we need to look a certain way, behave a certain way, talk a certain way. Pain doesn't usually fit very well into that image. Suffering, hurt, loss... Unless, unless we can jump to the happy ending. So often, we have constructed this idea that to be a good Christian, 
Any suffering you go through, you have to be able to constantly be saying, but I'm not really hurt because I know God is in control of all of this. I'm not really hurt because I know God is going to work all of this out. I'm not really suffering because I know God's got all of this. Now, those things are all true. But when you're, pain, when you're in pain, when you are hurting, it is okay to be honest about your pain. We live in a broken world. There are times when things will not make sense to us. At some point, we've decided that Christian maturity means being able to hide our hurt, to cover over our pain, and to spout Bible verses to tell everybody that we're okay. God's gracious. Even if you're hurt, even if you don't feel immediately in your pain, this incredible rush of God's closeness filling you up and telling you everything is going to be okay, God still loves you. As much as we try to cover over our sin, I think sometimes as Christians we try to cover over our pain even more. Because if I let people know how much I'm hurting, it's going to show that I don't have faith that God's working things out. And then when other people show pain, I'll at least speak for myself. I have a fixer mindset. If someone else is suffering, I want to fix them. Partly, if I'm being really honest, it's because other people's pain makes me uncomfortable. That's just flat out being honest. And I think most of us would would say the same thing. And because of that, when someone is hurting, I want to take away their hurt so that I don't have to feel that discomfort. But I can cover it over, again, with Christian maturity. Let me point you to Jesus. Pointing people to Jesus is not bad, okay? I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is this. Sometimes people hurt. And we need to let them be honest about their pain. They may not see God's hand working in the same way we, oh, great, enlightened, super Christians do. Because when we're in pain, we never feel pain. But we do, we just cover it over. When other people are in pain, we need to have grace for that. When people are hurting, we need to have grace for their hurt. People don't... People don't need us to come in and fix them. They need us to come in and love them. This is especially true in the third, uh, I guess you could say, ramification of this truth that God is gracious. Because God is gracious, we can be honest about our doubts And we can have grace for other people's doubts. Look, I I don't like to have doubts. I like to be correct. I like to be right. Doubt is a subtle admission that maybe I wasn't right about something. I don't like that. But I also recognize this, 
There's a fear that goes with doubt as well. Not just that I might be wrong, but what if other people see me as being wrong? Or what if in a community, think about this, as a church, as a community, as a family, that's united over what? Over our shared beliefs, over our faith, having doubt can seem alienating. If I come into a church service or a community group meeting and I look around and I think everybody here is so sure about this stuff. Everybody here so believes everything that is being taught or being said and I have questions about this, I can feel so much like an outsider. And what do I want to do? I just want to hide. I just want to cover it over. Especially if I'm somebody who's been in church for a long time. If I'm somebody who's proclaimed, I believe this is true. And then I start to have questions. Here's what I want you to hear. If you have doubts about faith, if you have doubts about Jesus, about the Bible, about your understanding of the Bible, listen, that is not a sin. Don't take the fact that I'm including in this talking about sin, pain, and doubt together to mean that pain or doubt are sin. Now, in saying that, there's a huge gulf, gulf between having humble doubt and questions and hostile skepticism and argumentation. But if there are things you're struggling with, if there are questions that you're not sure about, God can handle your doubts. The gospel can withstand your questions. And believer, if you're not doubting, if you don't have doubts, that's great. That's fine. You need to have grace for people who do. You need to have grace for people who have questions. You need to have grace for people who aren't seeing everything the way you're seeing it. I want to show you real quickly a story that I think illustrates this really beautifully, what this looks like, and why I think I can pretty confidently say it's okay to have doubt. And it's in the book of Matthew, chapter 11. And if you were here during our Advent series, you might actually recognize part of this passage because Matthew chapter 11, we looked at because there's a guy whose name was John. It's not the guy who wrote the book we're just reading from. It's a different John. We explained all this. John the Baptist, he's usually called. Jesus, we saw, Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest human being who ever lived, which is incredibly high praise, especially if you consider it's coming from Jesus. So Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest human who was ever born. He said that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But if we look at Matthew chapter 11, which if you're in one of our um, hardback Bibles, it's on page 816. I want to read to you something that John the Baptist said, okay? Uh, start at the beginning Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison, because he was in prison, because he had been preaching, and he offended the ruler 
of Jerusalem at that time. He had him arrested and put in prison. Eventually, he's going to be beheaded because he offended somebody by preaching. So he's in prison. When he heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, that's Jesus, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, so he sent messengers to Jesus, and they said, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You see this? John the Baptist, the greatest human being who was ever born. John was the one who baptized Jesus, and we're told that when John baptized Jesus, he looked and he saw the Holy Spirit in a physical form as a dove, and he heard the voice of God the Father. So John like experienced the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the, whole, and, and the Holy Spirit all at the same time. This is John the Baptist. He's seen this, he's experienced this with his own eyes, with his own ears. John the Baptist, if anybody should be convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, if anybody should be convinced that all this stuff is true, it should be John the Baptist. John the Baptist, scripture tells us that this is kind of weird, but really kind of cool, that when John the Baptist was in his mother's stomach, and Jesus was, when, when Jesus' mother was pregnant, and John's mother was pregnant, and their mothers got together, John started doing somersaults in his mom's stomach because he was so excited to be in the presence of Jesus. John the Baptist, okay? If anybody should be absolutely 100% convinced and sure that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. It's John the Baptist, but John the Baptist had doubts. John the Baptist had questions. John the Baptist, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say it might have something to do with the fact that he's sitting in prison for having preached that, hey, here's the Messiah, the rescuer, the one who's come to put everything right, and then he ends up in prison because of it. He has doubts. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus does not say, great, John, okay, we'll cross him off the list. He doesn't say, how could he doubt me? John the Baptist, you, you know what I told you. I made this crystal clear. He doesn't say that. In fact, again, Jesus' response that John the Baptist is the greatest comes after, after John has these doubts. Okay? It's not like Jesus said, John the Baptist is the greatest human being ever born. And then John says, are you really the Messiah? And he's like, oh, I guess I was wrong about that. Okay, maybe I'm bumping you down to fourth on the list. Like, Jesus, still after he has doubts, says this. Jesus doesn't berate him. He doesn't disown him. Look at his response. This is in verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What is that? And it's evidence, yes. And it's miraculous evidence, yes. But it's evidence of what? It's evidence of his grace. The list that Jesus gives here, tell John about this, is about a whole bunch of people who are in great need 
being met in their need. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus' response to John's doubts is not a logical apologetics discourse. It's, look at my grace. Look at my mercy. If you have doubts, there are great logical books of apologetics that are are thoughtful, intellectual, great resources. As great as they are, what you really need to hear is how much Jesus loves you. And if you're tempted to look down on someone who's struggling with doubts, or if you're tempted to want to fix them with a whole bunch of arguments to prove them wrong, I'm sorry. It's probably not going to work. That's not even how Jesus approached it. Because what Jesus wants us to know is that he loves us. That love is transformative. That love is the only thing that can overcome our doubts. Unless, look, unless you're better than John the Baptist, you're probably going to have doubts at some point in your life. You're definitely going to have pain. You're going to suffer. And we know undoubtedly you will sin. But you can be honest. You don't have to try to hide it. You don't have to try to cover it up. Because God is gracious. Jesus meets us in our doubt, in our pain, in our sin. He is gracious, so we can be honest. And we can change. Let's pray. Let's pray and we're going to share communion together. Heavenly Father, God, you are gracious. We are sinners. We do not deserve your forgiveness. We do not deserve your righteousness. But you meet us where we are. So God, my prayer is that we would come to you humbly to find that forgiveness, to find that grace, and that we would extend that grace to everyone around us because all of us need you. In your name we pray, amen.